If you will, take your copy of God's Word. You will find your way to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. I've entitled this a uh, little short snippet. The Lord's laid it on my heart to preach through this text. I've entitled it A Different Spirit. Uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 4. And today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. Looking at three more characteristics that I believe that we can see in those who have a different spirit. So I want to encourage us there to open up to Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 through 9. One thing, as you're finding your way there, uh, I want us to remember that the Lord is speaking to the disciples. Many of the times in much of the writings when we record, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are recording the words of Jesus, it is because Jesus is primarily speaking to the disciples. Most of the time, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord was speaking to the disciples, but he happened to have a crowd around him, so everyone was blessed to get to hear the word of the Lord. And here we see the disciples, you look back up into verse 1, and he says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And from that question, Jesus poses to the disciples how they are to have a different spirit about them. Not a spirit of pride, but of humility. Primarily, everything is going to come from a spirit of humility. Because mankind, we are prideful. We want to be great. We want to be known as great people. But listen, as I said last week, greatness, we should not worry about the measure of man of greatness. We should worry about the measure of God in greatness. So if you have found your way there in verses 5 through 9, if you have your copy of God's Word and you're able to stand, I would ask you to stand with me as we read Matthew 18, verses 5 through 9. Matthew 18, verses 5 through 9. And Matthew wrote in this way. He said, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maimed, uh, excuse me, lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Last week, we looked at three characteristics of a different spirit of someone that has been saved by the grace of God. Obviously, the first spirit is a converted spirit, a spirit that has turned or repented. That word repent means to turn. And so we have turned away from sin. We've been converted to Christ. One illustration I used with our youth last week, or Wednesday night, I believe it was, is that a lot of people think that you just got to turn away. But you need to get on a totally different road. 
I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. But what, it's, what, what it means to repent, it doesn't just mean to turn away from the direction you're going. Because if you just turn away, you're walking right back into the same culture, same people, same actions that you've been choosing for life. But this is the deal. That's what you call just a saving, a Savior. What we need is a Lord. And what happens is, is when you repent and you turn and you confess Christ as Lord, you know, the Bible tells us there's two roads. There's the wide path that leads to destruction and there's a narrow path that leads to eternal life. So obviously that must be two different roads. So when we repent and turn, Christ and his Lordship, because in humility we are converted, he picks us up and takes us out of that miry clay and sets us on a solid rock, which is a different place, correct? So he moves us onto that narrow road because he is Lord of our life. We don't fight him. We don't flail about and say, you don't know what's best for me because we knew what's best because we repented. We turned and he saved us by his grace. It's what he did. So we're on a different road. So in that, the first spirit is a converted spirit that we saw last week when Jesus said, you must be converted unless you're converted. The second one is a dependent spirit that we looked at last week. He said, unless you become like this little one or this child. And we know children are so dependent upon their fathers, their parents, their leadership. Uh, that's what they're dependent on. And we're dependent upon that leadership as well. And then he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child. So there is a humility of spirit. There is a humble spirit. Of the, of the different spirit. Well, today we're going to be looking at three different aspects of that different spirit that we have. When we look at this, three things that stood out to me. First is a receptive spirit. It's a receptive spirit. Look there in verse 5. It says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. We, do not need, we don't need to be people that are so hard-shelled and so hard-hearted and have such a bad demeanor or countenance about us that we can't receive people. We've got to be receptive in spirit of people. We need to be receptive. It doesn't mean an approving of a lifestyle, but a receptive. When people have turned, when people have become like a little child and they're young, he's very much talking about young in their faith, really. It's a two-fold meaning here, talking about Nobody should harm a child. I could stay here all day long with our culture today of harming children. And that should never be named of a believer in Jesus Christ. But Jesus is really speaking to those that are young in the faith, the new believer. We need to be receptive of the young new believer. We know little children make mistakes, don't they? But we still love them. We call them cute. We hug them. We show them a lot of grace, don't we? You know, they may say mean things sometimes. You're like, well, you know what? They're young. They don't know any better. But what do you do? You teach them right. You're receptive of them. It's the same thing with young people when they, I say young people, young people in the faith. I mean, it, it could be somebody who's 80 who receives Christ, somebody who's 58 that receives Christ, 38 or just 8 years old. They're all young in their faith and they've got to be treated as such. You shouldn't expect them to be where if you're a believer in Christ and you've been saved and redeemed for 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years, you shouldn't expect that young believer to be where you are. We've got to receive them and show them the same grace that God shows us, right? For by you have been saved through faith. 
It's God's grace. He's like, I know what you've done. You know what? I bore the burden already. God shows that grace. He receives us as we are. For God demonstrated his love for us. When? While we were yet sinners. He had a receptive spirit. We should have a different spirit about us. And to receive is to welcome with kindness and sympathy. And when you receive others in Christ's name, like this little child that Jesus is using as an illustration, it's proof you have received Christ. But if we get hard-hearted in our churchiness, and we start saying, well, they do this, and they dress like that, and they need to put on more clothes, or they need to do this, or they need to quit saying those words. Well, they're young in the faith, guys. Show a little grace. Show a little grace. Do you, have we forgotten where we were before grace? I think a lot, a lot of times we do. We forget where we were. We forget that wide road. We forget the ditches that we fell in. We forget all those things because we didn't have a father looking over us. But now we do. And we need to remember that in those times of hardship. And, and we want to say the things we want to say and, and let emotion rule us over Christ. We need to be mindful of those things. You know, our treatment should be, our treatment of others should be modeled just as Christ Jesus modeled it for us. Think about Matthew chapter 25. It's just a couple of pages over in your Bible if you want to flip there. But in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Jesus speaks to the position of those who received him in whatever state they found him. He said, uh, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you, you, you came and saw me. When I was, in, uh, when I was sick, you, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you came and saw me. But Christ was confronted as to when he was in all these situations. And the Lord said, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren... You did it to me. The Lord tells them what their reward for their abundance. Uh, in the, uh, the Lord tells them what will be their reward for their abundance in a receiving spirit. He says it's going to be eternal life. He said when you have received them in this situation, in these situations, you've received me. You've treated me in the same way. It's called hospitality in some levels. It's how you have received somebody. And then Jesus speaks to the others and how they did not receive him by not receiving the least of these in their situations and what their reward would be for their lack of a receiving spirit. It's going to be eternal punishment. Matter of fact, the scripture says it very much like this. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For the devil, excuse me, and his angels. We have got to have a receiving spirit, a receptive spirit. So a consideration, acceptance or receiving of one another, and especially the receiving of these little ones, is a basic test of discipleship. Jesus so identified himself with the little ones that to receive them in his name is to receive him. We need to have a receptive spirit. When someone comes through these doors, it don't look like you or me. It's not for us to go, what are you doing here? 
The question is, is why is it taking so long? <laughs> we want to see more folks. We want to see more folks. It doesn't matter what, what creed, nationality, background, economic status. It don't matter. When they come through those doors, we need to welcome them and receive them. Listen, if, if we start getting so high and mighty on who we are, we forget what Christ has done for us. Think about how high and mighty he was. And he left his throne of glory and became poor for our sakes. And, and listen, the scripture goes on to tell us in Isaiah, by his stripes we are healed. He has received us where we are, how we were. But yet he says, I'm not leaving you there. I'm not leaving you there. I want to receive you unto myself. I want to receive you. Secondly, we need to have a protective spirit. We need to have a protective spirit. Look there in verses 6 and 7. Jesus is still speaking, using this small child as an illustration. He said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Man, that's pretty intense, huh? Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to that man or woman by whom the offense, the offense comes. God wants us to protect the little ones. Whether they be little ones. We think about Jace and Connor and Charlie and and Maria, and Allison, and, and Samuel. I think about all these little ones that are in our church, these little ones. We need to be protective of them. We need to, you know, guard their hearts, guard their minds. As much as we can outside the, the work of Christ, we need to do those things. We've got to guard them. We need to, be, we need to have a protective spirit. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin... To cause a little one to sin in the original language means to stumble. It says is, is, it's worse than to die. It's worse than to die. It would be better to be drowned in the sea than to cause a little one to go wrong. And, and the method by which the Lord says one should die was a common Roman form of execution. The great millstone was the upper of two millstones so large that it had to be turned by a donkey. Some more understanding about this millstone. Craig Blomberg in, his, in the New American Commentary to Matt, of Matthew says this. He says, The large millstone referred to the huge stone wheels that were attached to the horizontal bar connected to the donkey's harness. As the animal walked around in circles, the wheel rolled over a raised stone slab, crushing the grain underneath. Then when the Lord says, in reference to, the, to how... Uh, where they should be thrown in. He says the depths refers to the deepest part of the sea. So with this vivid metaphor, Jesus leaves no one in doubt over the certainty of drowning. <laughs> Pretty intense, right? Jesus' logic proceeds as in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. He does not imply that one evil, acts one evil act leads to damnation but a lifestyle characterized by causing others to sin is incompatible with true discipleship. It's incompatible with true discipleship. A little one in this context is initially a small child, but Jesus is also making a point to those childlike in their faith. 
In Acts 9, we see Saul in conversation with the Lord. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? But was Saul directly persecuting Jesus? Who was he persecuting? Christians. Followers of the way. His little ones. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because if you persecute his people... You are persecuting Jesus. If you are, if you are chastising, if you are uh, demeaning and, and, and destroying Christians, you're trying to do that to Christ. Be cautious. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Whatever you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me, right? Just quoted that just a moment ago. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be very cautious of that. Be defenders. Be protectors of these little ones. And listen, the opposite of having a protective spirit is to lead another believer into known sin. Now, some of these examples of this could be you get them to agree to false testimony against someone. Let's say this about so-and-so. Come on, you can come along. And as a believer, you're trying to get someone to sin, a little one, a young one and a believer, or a child. You know, you're saying, come on, let's say something negative. No. No, you shouldn't be doing that. A second thing is you could lead someone to cheat. You could lead someone, like for students, youth, and children, uh, talking about cheating on a test. Hey, hey, cheat on a test. Help me out here. I didn't study at all. I was real lazy and procrastinated and all those different things. I've done that before. Uh, you know what I mean? Like procrastinated, been lazy. You know, but we don't need to be that person. We need to be people that in everything we do, we do it as though we're doing unto the Lord. So we should do things excellently. We should do them in that way. It could be uh, as adults, you cheat on your taxes. <laughs> A little bit more there. Or you cheat on something. You cheat in the workplace. You do something that you know you shouldn't do. And you lead someone else to do so as well. And they know you've made professions of faith that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Be leery. Be cautious of what you're doing. You could entice them to leave their responsibilities. Oh, man, you need to leave that. You need to leave that. Don't, you know, you ain't got to tell nobody. You can just leave Leave your responsibilities. Leave it to somebody else. They'll pick up the slack. That's not very Christ-like. Christ has given us a responsibility, whatever that may be. Responsibility to my wife. Responsibility to my kids. Responsibility to my church. And even if you're in service as a committee member or a chairperson of a committee member, and, and those things, just, just leaving out and leaving your responsibilities, God says that's not right. You shouldn't lead other people to do that either. Causing that other to sin. Husbands could lead their wives to lie and vice versa. Let's agree to this and say this so that we can get away with that. That's another way of, of leading someone else, causing a little one to sin. Young men or young women could seduce one or the other to sexual sins. That's another way of, of, of doing that, of... of um, of causing another little one to sin. You could encourage someone into debauchery, into public intoxication, or, or participating in using drugs. These are different things in how we could cause a little one to sin. we we got to say no to those things. Number one, we should be saying no to them ourselves. Listen, causes of stumbling or sinning, it may be varied. And, and it is varied. There's a, there's a host of different ways that people could cause other people to sin. But the sin in mind that the Lord is speaking to goes back to that question in verse 1 when the disciples asked, 
Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So this is talking about prideful ambition, such as was manifested by the disciples. We've got to have a protective spirit. David Platt said this, and this is kind of on point with verse 7. He says, we know there will continue to be temptations in the world. You see there in verse 7, it says, woe to the world because of offenses. We know the world is going to bring temptation our world in our way. You know, Christ has saved us. He saved us from ourselves. He saved us from our eternal destination of hell. But yet he's not removed us from the earth. So we still have that cultural influence upon us that we have to fight and battle every day of our lives. It's something that we all have to deal with. So we know those offenses are there from the world. But David Platt says this. We know there will continue to be temptations in the world as long as there is sin in the world. We expect that. However, we must not add to the world's temptations by leading one another to sin in the church. For instance, don't gossip to me when I'm already fighting off the tendency in my own heart. Don't lead me astray in the name of your supposed Christian liberties when I'm fighting every day not to turn those liberties into license to sin. Both materialism and sexual temptations also come to mind in our culture as it is all too easy to lead others astray in these areas without even realizing it. It would be better for you, Jesus says, if you would put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself down into a watery grave. That's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. Instead of gossiping, instead of leading astray in your Christian liberties, instead of leading people to materialism or sexual temptation, instead of doing those things, just choose Christ. Choose to keep your mouth closed, to, to not say something, to act in a way that brings honor to God. Do that. We as mature believers should always be steering childlike believers or young believers uh, to sanctifying acts, not sin-filled acts. We need to be directing them to sanctifying acts, not sin-filled acts. There is a terrible responsibility of the mature believer in the sanctifying effort of the new believer. Now listen, when I say that, excuse me, when I say that sentence, we understand we, we can be partially held responsible for the work of, persons, of a person's discipleship, their growth, their maturity in the faith. But listen, the primary work of that is between the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the Father, and the believer. But we can be a stumbling block. We can cause someone to sin. And there is a terrible responsibility of the mature believer where we fit in that discipleship, in that maturation process for that young believer. We fit in that. William Barclay, he wrote it this way. He said, there is a terror of teaching another to sin instead of teaching to be sanctified. There is a terror. That's a terrible responsibility. There is a terror of teaching another to sin. There is a terror of the punishment of those who teach another to sin. Just think about that for a minute. The Lord says it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and go jump in a lake somewhere. Go take a long, a long walk off a short pier. You know, 
The Lord's saying, do that instead of causing a little one to sin. There is, I'll tell you what the Bible tells us, and we read it in Hebrews uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. It said, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're causing a little one to sin, young in the faith or a child, however God is meaning this, which I mean, it's a, I believe it's a double meaning. However this, listen, you better repent and turn away from your choices now because the punishment is going to be severe. Now listen, this is a message to the church. This is a message to the disciples. But I do want you to know too, the world is trying to cause offenses to your children grandchildren and great-grandchildren you better be aware we need to be the people that are moving our children towards sanctifying acts not sin-filled acts and we can stand in the middle i used to uh julie used to sing a song years ago called prayer warrior she's a prayer warrior down on her knees wrestling with powers and principalities standing in the gap for others and that's exactly where we need to be, standing in the gap for these little ones. Standing in the gap, praying. Yes, the sanctifying work is predominantly Holy Spirit, believer, Jesus Christ. But it's also a part of us, church. It's a part of us. It's a part of what we do at Sunday school. It's a part of what we do on Wednesday nights. It's a part of what we do in this pulpit. It's the sanctifying effort. Of setting you apart. Of, of being a part of that maturation process. I think about yesterday. A, 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 a mother from one of my students at my previous church. She was moving him in to a new dorm. And she posted some pictures. And he had brought his Bible with him. Not by mom's pushing. Not by her choice. Brought that Bible. He had it on the end table. And she tagged a couple of fellas that, have, that were at my previous church with me and myself. And, and thanked us for that. Listen, I was a, be able to be a part of standing in the gap for that young man. Listen, I hope that is something every single person in this room one day gets to be applauded for or appreciated for because you were someone who stood in the gap, who helped in the, in the spiritual maturity for that young person. And when I say young person, like I said, 8, 38, 58, or 80, whenever they came to Christ, we are to be people to help them along the way. We are to be a protective person. And there's a terror, the third one, there's a terror in one's self being the stumbling block. These are terrible actions to be considered as we walk through this life as professing believers in Jesus Christ and his disciples. Let's look at the third point, the sacrificing spirit, verses 8 and 9. It says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maim." I don't know why I want to say that first. Lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now listen, I know several commentators say Jesus was not literally meaning for you to cut off your hand because we know the issue is of the heart. 
Maybe. Maybe. I'm not one of those that's going to go, well, Jesus meant this, Jesus meant that. I mean, I know I've said that can have a twofold meaning about the little child, which I fully believe. But listen, in, in Middle Eastern time, you know, you got caught, and even, even up until recently, you got caught stealing, a finger gets cut off your hand in the Middle East. A little bit by little bit. You're going to learn that hand ain't going to steal something. Your heart's going to change or else your hand's going to change, right? I think the Lord's trying to make another vivid point here. Before it becomes so extreme that the only thing, I mean, you're, you're at your wit's end. And the only thing you know to do is to cut that off or to cut this off. What you're handling, where your feet are taking you, what your eyes are viewing. Before it gets so extreme, repent and turn. Be converted. Be dependent. Be humble. Be receptive. Be protective. Sometimes we have to have a sacrificing spirit. We have to sacrifice the things that we hold so dear because you know what? They've become an idol. And sometimes it's not just that they've become an idol. They've led us to sin. They've led us to sin. When we consider exercising a sacrificing spirit, it is much in the line of considering our liberties in light of the immaturity of young believers or little ones in general. There's a lot of people who say, oh, I could drink. Yeah, you, you might could drink. But if you're around a young believer, who knows how their body may respond to alcohol. It might, it might one drink might start them off on a path of addiction that they'll never break. Listen, I'm a teetotaler. I've never, I've, I've never tasted any alcohol in my life. Never. Not wine or alcohol. Or, because or, or, I'm afraid. I'm gonna, I, I, can, I get on to something and I'm on it for a long time. I'll stick with it for a long time. Fantasy football, I thought I'd never start it. And I'm on fantasy football all the time. You know, I know that's not alcohol. But nonetheless... I get caught up in something. I'm going to stick with it for a long time, whether it's a video game or if it's a book of the Bible. Y'all know that. We've been in Hebrews for a long time. You know, I, get, I get into something. I'm in it. That's the reason why I don't think it's wise to get started into things that, that could be destructive. So I might say, well, you might say, because I've never tasted you might say, well, I, I, I can do that. Well, I'm not approving of that behavior, but I just want to let you know, this should not be done in front of a young believer. Shouldn't be done in front of a young believer because you don't know. They might have had a dad that was abusive whenever they got on alcohol. And then they're going to see their friend who claims to know Christ drinking alcohol. How are they going to associate that? Listen, we need to be very, very cautious. How we may cause one of these little ones to sin. When you think about Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 14. I had a lot of announcements this morning, so I'm going to take a little bit of that time here, okay? Uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 14, it says this, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If that's not more of a, a message to sacrificing of what you want. If you've been married, you know the sacrificing spirit. 
Because if you, if you don't sacrifice in a, in, a, in a marriage, then that marriage is going to fail. I'm just telling you, it's just going to fail. If you're not willing to sacrifice in some areas, well, you know what? Can't go play golf every single Saturday no more. Can't go do this every single time. You know why? Because you love that person. You love your wife. You want to spend time with them. Well, you know what? Hunting season comes in. You know, I like to hunt. But you know what? I can't go hunting every single weekend. You know, I, just, I need to take my wife on a date. I need to spend some time with my kids. Now, you may say, well, my wife likes to hunt. My children like to hunt. Well, then fine. That's, that's different. That's different. But I'm talking about when it becomes a selfish pleasure and it takes precedence over things that should be more important. We got to have a sacrificing spirit. If your whole family likes to go fishing, if your family likes to go camping, hey, more power to you. Go do it. Go have a good time. Make memories. But if you want to go do that on your own and you constantly find yourself missing out on things of the family because you feel like you have got to do this for your own self, that's, you need to evaluate yourself. That's not a sacrificing spirit. We need to have a sacrificing spirit. Printed front and back this week. So, <laughs> so when we love our neighbors ourselves, we are considering them and will most likely sacrifice our pleasures or menial wants for their betterment. Before we can truly be models for others, we must first look to Christ's model for ourselves. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy as I am holy. And holiness is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with our new and different spirit to be more like Christ. And to be more like Christ, we have to be more willing to sacrifice. Jesus goes to an extreme to emphasize the importance of holiness for oneself and as an example for the little ones. Again, David Platt puts it this way. He said, instead of flirting with sin, we should destroy it. If something is leading us to sin, we should get rid of it. See then how this point fits to the previous point. When we are zealous about holiness in our own lives, we will be zealous about protecting one another from sin. In turn, when we are zealous about protecting one another from sin, we will be all the more careful about sin in our own lives. If we're casual about our own sin, on the other hand, we will lead others to be casual about their sin. That is why we must be intentional on protecting one another. And in protecting one another, we need to be sacrificing of ourselves at times. And in this sense of sacrificing, we can see where this, this is definitely personal. Initially, this is personal. But it can be viewed in the perspective of the church, the bride of Christ as well. What is the outcome of the one who will not sacrifice for others? What is the outcome of the one that will not sacrifice for others? Scripture says, hellfire. Hellfire. One commentator puts it this way. He explains, he says, this is the Gehenna of fire. This is the valley of Hinnom, a valley below the mountain of Jerusalem. It was forever accursed because it was the place where in the days of the kingdom... The renegade Jews had sacrificed their children in the fire to the pagan god Moloch. Josiah had made it a place accursed. In later days, it became the refuse dump of Jerusalem, a kind of vast incinerator. 
Always the refuse was burning there, and a pall of smoke and a glint of smoldering fire surrounded it. This place was where everything useless was cast so it may receive its just conclusion. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying this, uselessness invites disaster. Uselessness invites disaster. So the useless person who is an evil influence on others, who cannot justify the simple fact of his or her existence, is in danger of the punishment of God unless this person removes those terrible things from his or her life which makes them the handicap that they are. As a church, we are to be sacrificial in our time, our talents, and service for the holiness of the body. Sometimes we will need to assist people or give to the church in a sacrificial way. I, I consider the widow and her giving of the might. She gave sacrificially. The Lord said of her in Mark chapter 12 verse 43. He said, assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Now how did he know that? How did he know what she had put in? Jesus was people watching from across the way. Jesus liked the people watch because he, he was trying to discern them, to figure them out. Of course, he's Jesus. He knew them anyway. But this was for the benefit of the disciples. But he sees this. And he, he goes on to say, For they, talking about all those who had given to the treasury, for, all, for they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Listen, this widow was sacrificing of her own so that the ministry of the temple at that time may go on. She believed in the work of the temple, whether the temple was believing in the true work of the temple. She believed that it should have gone on. She believed that, that giving sacrificially was vitally important, whether or not the temple was doing what they were supposed to be doing. She knew God was going to hold them accountable, and they should be doing what God has set them up to do, but she was going to give she gave sacrificially. The work of the temple was to glorify God in holiness and to strengthen the people in their lives. And by her sacrifice, Christ saw her heart. And by our sacrifice, or lack thereof, Christ sees our heart as well. We've got to have a sacrificing spirit. In this text today, Christ draws on taking extreme action to stop personal sin leading into congregational sin that creates stumbling blocks and sin for little ones. That's what he's speaking to today. Christ draws on taking extreme action to stop personal sin, leading into congregational sin that creates stumbling blocks and sin for the little ones. He says, cut off a hand or a foot. Better to be lame or maimed entering heaven than to go to hell with all appendages. Pluck out an eye. Better to go to heaven with only one eye than to go to, than to, go to hell seeing it most clearly. William Barclay wrote, and then I'm going I'm to say this and then I'll conclude. William Barclay wrote, one thing is certain. In any person or in any church, whatever is a seduction to sin must be removed however painful the removal may be. For if we allow it to flourish, a worse punishment will follow. In this passage that we've looked at today, there may well be stressed both the necessity of self-renunciation for the Christian individual and discipline for the Christian church.
As we think about these things today, and we think about the spirit, a different spirit that we should have. We should have a different spirit. We should definitely have a different spirit about us. We need to have this Holy Spirit about us. In us. Sealing us until the day of redemption. Listen, you may say, well, how do I get? How do I receive the Holy Spirit? One of the first characteristics of a different spirit is a humble spirit. You confess Christ as Lord. You believe in your heart God raised his son from the dead. And you're saved. For as with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And as with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. That's how that comes.